open up to Mark chapter 3 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. And this morning's message is the ministry of Jesus continues. The ministry of Jesus continues. Now, if you remember, last week, Jesus had to deal with the religious leaders in the, uh, in the synagogue. Well, he's at it again today. Or in, the, or in this chapter. We're back in the synagogue again on the Sabbath day. And sure enough, there was another suffering human being. This time it's a man with a withered hand. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, and then we'll look at the passage. And he, speaking of Jesus, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, they being the religious leaders. They watched him closely, whether Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse Jesus, and that he... And, and then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other And then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. So here's Jesus healing on the Sabbath again. Again, we find him at odds with the scribes and the Pharisees over what they called working on the Sabbath. You know, healing on the Sabbath would be considered working on the Sabbath. You know, we, we find them upset with him, you know, and, you know, what Jesus said about the Sabbath you know, the last time we said, he said that the Sabbath was made for man and not for the man for Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So that's where we left off in chapter 2. Well, here we are now in chapter 3. Uh, what Jesus said about the Sabbath in chapter 2, 27 and 28 was God's compassionate provision for man's comfort. And it, the, the, the Sabbath was never meant to add to man's burdens. It was meant to relieve them instead, to lighten their burdens. You know, but it didn't make any impression on these hard-hearted, deceitful, you know, legalists. It, it, didn't, it didn't affect them whatsoever. And it was Jesus' habit to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And on this particular Sabbath day, among those that were attending the synagogue service was this poor, helpless man with a withered hand. It was probably paralysis which caused the hand to shrivel up. Luke 6, 6 says it was his right hand that was withered. Jesus has now run, has another run in with the scribes and the Pharisees here. And according to chapter uh, verse 2 here, notice it says they, speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they watched him, that is, they watched Jesus closely. They knew what Jesus would do, most likely. They knew the compassionate heart of Jesus. They knew the loving, caring heart of Jesus. And so the critics were there to watch him. Squinting their eyes and just, you know, trying to get the best, you know, view that they could. They were determined on watching everything that Jesus did. Instead of rejoicing, instead of being happy... That Jesus heals this man's paralyzed hand. Instead of being happy in this display of God's love and kindness. They watched with jealous eyes to see if Jesus would use his healing power on the Sabbath day. Because they were really hoping that he would. So that they might be able to accuse him of breaking some man-made tradition. Some tradition of the elders. Now, this is the heart of these men. Even though outwardly they looked like they were godly and religious, they were a total stranger to the grace of God. Now, this is a good picture of the legalist then and today who looks only to find fault with Christ and with Christians and with the church. 
totally untouched by the suffering of their fellow man. They could have cared less about their man who was suffering and that Jesus was going to take care of that suffering. They cared about what Jesus was going to do on the Sabbath day. Jesus said to the man with a withered hand in verse 3, notice, step forward. Now, the Pharisees allowed healing on the Sabbath if it was a matter of life and death, but this wasn't that case. So Jesus uh, says to the man, step forward there in verse 3. Knowing the heartlessness of the scribes and the Pharisees and what they were thinking, Jesus took the Sabbath to a higher and more positive level. Now think about it. Jesus could have said, you know, to avoid all of this hassle, Jesus could have said to the religious leaders, hey, or or, or to even to the man, he says, you know what, let's do this tomorrow. Let's wait one more day. We don't have to deal with the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, we can avoid all of this hassle and, 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 and you know, we, we, can, we can heal the arm tomorrow. But you see, Jesus wanted to challenge the religious leaders' traditions. And so he asked the religious leaders, he asked them, Hey, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? In other words, which is really consistent with the law? To restore life to this man's withered hand, even though it's on the Sabbath, or to kill his hopes and his future by, you know, observing a senseless man-made tradition. They never never answered Jesus' question. They couldn't deny his arguments, and they refused to agree agree, uh, with Christ. They refused to admit they agreed with him. Evil is at work every single day and twice on Sunday. So why shouldn't good be at work as well? Death is always at work, but that should never keep us from trying to save a life. Look at verse 5 again. And when Jesus had looked around at them, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, when he looked at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Knowing these, these religious men's hypocrisy, Jesus could see the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he could see their sin, and that made him very angry. And Jesus was grieved. The word grieved means to be moved to grief by sympathy. Jesus was grieved over this pitiful situation. And now Jesus never got angry. And this is important to understand. Jesus never got angry at anybody for personal reasons or injury or slander to himself. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.23, Who when he, that is Christ, When Jesus was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, when when Jesus was was bad-mouthed, when he was threatened, when anything was done to him, he didn't do anything back. He turned it over to his father and had his father deal with it. Jesus only got angry when he saw man treating his fellow man in a harmful way. No other kind of anger has a place in God's kingdom or in the heart of God's people. Jesus never got angry at the publicans or sinners. But he did get mad at the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees because they had rather protect their traditions than see a man healed. You would have thought that these men... When they saw such a display of the grace and the power in Christ, that that would have filled every heart with gladness and everybody would have rejoiced and praised God. But it had the very opposite effect on these jealous critics and those who followed man-made traditions rather than divine revelation. Look at verse 6 again. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So again, instead of these religious leaders being happy and rejoicing because this man was healed, what do they do? They show a total lack of consciousness toward God and their legalistic observances of their man-made traditions. 
and their false ideas of God's will for observing the Sabbath. They were so upset at what Jesus did, they got together with the Herodians and they started planning on how to kill Christ. And how to kill Jesus. What was, what was his, what was the law that he broke? Healing a man, making him whole on the Sabbath day. Let's look at verses 7 through 12 now. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitudes, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But Jesus sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So Jesus is catching all this static from the scribes and the Pharisees, and they go out and they plot on how to kill Jesus. And so what does he do? He says, "Let's, let's go away. He withdraws to the seaside because of the hostility of the Pharisees. He gets away from them. And he goes to this seashore with his disciples where he was surrounded by friends. Large crowds also followed Jesus, which wasn't good for him because they weren't, you see, they weren't spiritually interested in Christ. And the authorities could accuse him of leading a revolt against the Romans because he was drawing this crowd. But Jesus still met with the people. He still healed the sick. He still cast out demons. And he warned them not to make him known. Jesus didn't want demons witnessing for him. And Jesus often told those who healed, who he healed, don't tell anybody. Because he didn't want the nations to get the nation's hope up for a political Messiah yet. It wasn't the time. He didn't want these men's testimonies just in case they were following him for the wrong reasons as well. Jesus knew that his words and his works, that is what he said and what he did, would lead them to see who he really was if they were really looking. And that's the same with anybody. There's a lot of critics when it comes to Christ and Christianity. And that's because they're not looking with honest hearts. But if you listen to what Jesus said, and you see the things that he does, You'll find Christ. You'll see that he is who he says he is. And what he's meant to be. He's all of that. At this point, Jesus had reached a turning point in his ministry. The gap, the division, the hostility between the Jewish people and Jesus. It got, and the Jewish leaders got wider and wider and wider. They became, the Jewish leaders became more hostile against Jesus. Huge crowds were following Jesus, but they weren't interested in the things of God. They were interested in the things they could get from God. And many times that's the only time people come to Christ or they call upon him because they need something. They're in dire need. They're in bad shape and they want God to help them out. The authorities could accuse Jesus of leading a revolt. That's why they wanted to destroy him. Jesus' next step would be to go up to the mountain now and to spend the night in prayer and to choose 12 men to assist him as his apostles. Look at 13 through 19 now. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. So, Jesus has gone up into the mountain to get away from the the, the Jewish religious leaders. He goes up there, and now he's going to spend time praying and picking these 12 disciples to assist him. So here, the 12 disciples are chosen. 
Now, the number 12 is meaningful. And numbers in the Bible, they, a lot of them have an important meaning, a symbolic meaning. The number 12 in the Bible is, is meaningful because there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. 12 is the number of governmental perfection. In Genesis, uh, God started with Jacob's 12 sons. In Exodus, he built them into a mighty nation. So these 12 disciples were now the heart of this new spiritual nation. Now, Luke 6 tells us that Jesus continued all night in prayer before choosing these 12 men. He spent all night in prayer choosing the leaders of the church. You see, when it comes to making important decisions in your life, you need to spend time in prayer. So that you, God might guide you and give you the wisdom and the direction in which you need to go. But Jesus continued all night in prayer before he chose these 12 men. Now notice it says before he chose them. These men did not choose Jesus. All right? They didn't choose Jesus. It isn't men who choose or appoint themselves to be his servants. Jesus chooses and Jesus ordains. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. See, love desires and then it chooses. It's like a man who falls in love with a woman. He desires her to be his wife. He loves her first. He desires her to be his wife. Then he chooses her. Behind every choice of Christ is the love of Christ. And remember that. Everything God chooses for your life, he chooses it for you out of his love for you. That includes trials and afflictions, all suffering. Because it serves a purpose, a mighty purpose in the kingdom of God and in your life. So remember, whatever you're going through, God has chosen that for you out of his love. I know it's hard to fathom, it's hard to think, think about it and, and, and justify if you want, but it's a truth, truth of God's word. And so, again, it, it, it's, it's out of his love. Now, Jesus chose them, notice what it says, that what they might be with him in verse 14. He's chosen us. That we might be with him. The first purpose given for choosing these 12 men was that they would be with Jesus. God wants us. God wants our fellowship. He didn't choose you just to, you know, have you run around and and, and just go about your business. He chose you to have fellowship with him. He's our heavenly father. We're his children. Anyway, it's just like any parent. We love, you know, when, when, you know, when our ki- we love our kids to be around us. We love to be around them. Even and, and, and when they get older and they have kids and they, and they go out on their own, we miss them. We enjoy being around them. And, and if we do, can you imagine how the father must grieve when we, his children, don't spend time with him? You know, in the word of God, in prayer, meditating upon him in the word and coming to church to, to meet with him and to hear his word and, and to fellowship with his people, your brothers and sisters, must grieve God tremendously. Leaving the house and we don't stop for prayer or fellowship. You know, we just go. We just go. And, and God misses us. You know, he wants to have that fellowship. And so he chose them that they might be with him, that that he'd have that fellowship. He wanted that fellowship. Christ desires our fellowship. In fact, he desires our fellowship more than, than we desire his fellowship, which is obvious. The second purpose was service for why he chose the disciples. It says that he might send them out to what? Preach. Preach. Preaching and teaching of the word of God should have a high priority in the church's program than any other part of the program or service. Helpless in themselves. That is, the disciples were helpless in themselves. But they were given power to do their work. And we need the power to do God's work. 
We need to do the power of God's work in our own life. Much less the power to do the work of God in ministry. And the word power here means authority. And Jesus gave them power to do the work. Power, again, means here authority. And in Luke 9.1, in a similar passage, the word power refers to strength. So God is the one who gives, God's servants need both strength and authority when God calls them. He gives them both. You see, he equips you to do what he's called you to do. The 12 disciples were empowered by the Lord to do mighty works. Jesus, think of this, Jesus would train them personally and Jesus would teach them. And as a result of Christ's teaching, Jesus would lead them to a ministry of preaching, healing, and deliverance, and he would send them out to preach the gospel. It was through intimate fellowship with Jesus that the disciples would receive a commission that is to go preach. To go preach and with an authority, with power, to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now notice that there's a difference between common sickness and demon possession. There are those who think that many common illnesses are caused by demons. You know, know, maybe in in your your past life as a Christian, and maybe some churches that you've gone to, and and I've I've seen them myself, that you've seen so-called deliverance ministries. You know, I want you to help me to stop smoking. Okay, well, you got the demon of tobacco. We're going to deliver you. We've got the deliverance many. We're going to deliver you from tobacco. Or, you know what? I have a problem with alcohol. Well, you got the demon of alcohol. We're going to cast, brother, the, the demon of alcohol out of you or the demon of lust, and, and on and on it goes. But, again, those are, those are, those are areas of my life that, that again, through uh, a communion with Christ and, and, and walking with him and, and, and prayer that, that, that God can help deliver me from those things. Now, again, here's something that's important to remember. Okay, the disciples had, okay, the disciples had the same authority that Jesus had. The disciples had the same authority that Jesus had. Have you ever seen a school of ministry training so simple yet so effective? The disciples had the same power Jesus had. Jesus didn't tell them, all right, guys, I've chosen you for the ministry. But now you need to go to Jerusalem's theological seminary for training. No. Their appointment by Jesus involved communion, companionship, commission. He does it all. James and John were, were, were called uneducated men, untrained, and yet they were preaching the gospel and reaching the world for Christ. Communion, companionship, and commission. Jesus chose Simon, who he named Peter, the rock. James and John, in verse 17, were nicknamed Boanerges by Jesus, the sons of thunder. Now, we usually think of John as the, the apostle of love. And peace. But John and his brother James definitely didn't have their reputation before they knew Jesus. They were the sons of thunder. They had an anger problem. But again, we see the the gospel of John and and the tenderness of John. After he knew Jesus, that anger problem was gone. He didn't have to take anger management classes or, or, you know, whatever they do today to deal with anger. Jesus took the anger away. Just that time that he had with him, that relationship that he had with him. He called Levi, which, God, which was named Matthew, which is the gift from God. Judas Iscariot, always named, was always named last in Acts, where he's let, I'm sorry, yeah, Judas Iscariot, always named last, except in Acts, where he's left out. And that's because he fell by transgression. All right, he fell by transgression, not because of a predetermination that God was going to send him to hell. These were all ordinary men with imperfect and different personalities. And with the exception of Judas, because of their 
companionship, that is because of the other disciples' companionship with Jesus, they were all destined to become effective witnesses for Christ. And and Judas could have been one of those two, except somewhere along the way, he fell. He fell away. Because Acts chapter 125, they replaced him, it says, because he fell by transgression. Now, you can't fall if you're not a Christian. He fell by transgression. Somewhere he sinned, did not repent, and continued, and he went out and he did himself in. It's always mind-blowing and encouraging to see what Jesus can do with such a bunch of different people, and I've seen it over the years, and it's wonderful. It's exciting. These 12 men would be able to continue the Lord's work and they'd be able to train others to carry on the ministry after they were gone. And that's what we're to do. We're to train others to take our place. And if the church can't get along without me, then I haven't done my job. I am to make sure that the church can can run smoothly and without me or else I haven't done my job. We are actually to, to to, to train ourselves out of a job. And I remember one time, uh, I won't tell you his name because he'll know who it was. And I went, anyway, I, I was sitting in a pastor's office one day and a guy came in and said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And I said, you want me to leave? He said, no, you, you can stay. And, and, the, and the guy said, Pastor, I, I, I got a, I'm having a problem with some guy in my ministry. And this guy, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, tell me about it. He said, okay, well, I, I need you to do something. He said, well... If I'm going to take care of your job, then I don't need you. That guy just went, his eyes opened up, and, and I, just, I just chuckled. Because I knew the guy real well, and I knew where he was coming from. And it was, he was true. He says, if, I do, if I'm going to have to take care of your ministry, then, then I don't need you. Are you the head of the ministry? He said, yeah. He said, then you take care of it. He said, okay. And he went out, and he took care of it. But again, if we're not taking care of business, then, you know, we're, we're not needed. Now, and so again, uh, we, we need to train people so that they can take care of, of you know, the, uh, the work that they're doing for the Lord. So, <clears throat> again, uh, here um, they're being trained, and, and these men would train others so that after they were gone, and, and you know what? They, they did well because here we are after the disciples were all cha- trained, you know, and now they're gone, and, and here we are. So that gospel's been passed down, and we just train and, and, and so that it'll keep on going. So, again, for, let's look at now verses 20 through 21. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Verses 20 through 21 tells us that so many people came to Jesus. And the disciples Uh, They came to Jesus and the disciples again. Notice that they didn't have time to eat. Jesus was doing ministry. The disciples were doing ministry. They weren't able to take time to eat. And and again, this this is where ministry goes sometimes. You know, we're busy, depending on what we're doing and what it is. You know, we, we, we can't stop. We, we, you know, we're trying to meet the needs of the people. And that's exactly what we see Jesus and the disciples were doing. And, and verse 21 tells us that when his family, when Jesus' family heard about what he was doing, what was going on, they were afraid for him. And, you know, this is a natural thing. This is rightly so. But they don't understand the spiritual nature of what was going on. They were afraid for Jesus. They're thinking, oh man, he, he's so tired. He hasn't taken a break and he's hungry that he's probably, you know, verse 21 says, out of his mind. So his own immediate family tried to stop him and get him out of there. But again, that's ministry. And that's what a lot of people don't understand when they get into ministry. You know, a lot of times they, 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 they think it's like a, 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 a secular workplace. Every two hours you get a break and every four hours you get a lunch and it doesn't work that day. You, you do what needs to be done and then when, when, when you meet the needs of the ministry, then 
your needs are taken care of. Look at verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So in in verse 22 here, you know, they're accusing Jesus, the scribes and these godly leaders, or, or these religious um, leaders, they're, they're accusing Jesus of being the devil, being Satan. But again, not even, the thing is, they're saying not even Satan's kingdom can stand if it's divided. You know, if Jesus, who's claiming the kingdom of God, and yet he's casting out demons, if they're saying he's Satan, well, he's, he's defeating his purpose, claiming to be the, 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 in, in God's kingdom. And yet he's casting out demons and, you know, he's, again, defeating his purpose. If he's trying to, you know, if he's like the godly leaders think he's saying that he's a, 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 he's Satan himself. But whoever defeats Satan has to be stronger than him. So Jesus implies here that he came to, the, to enter the house of the strong man and to seize his goods. And so Jesus said that God will forgive. Or he said that, first of all, that, that he illustrates for them here. He says, you can't enter a strong man's house and rob him unless you tie him up. Then you can rob him. Jesus said that, that, that God will forgive evil words spoken against the Son, but not against the Holy Spirit. And saying that the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the prince of demons, that Jesus, again, is, is Satan himself, that the Holy Spirit is doing the work of, of the prince of demons, that's when they cross the line. Their hearts were so hard that, that they couldn't repent. Their day of repentance had passed. This is what some have designated as the, as the unpardonable sin. You see, it's, so, it's possible to sin for so long that the conscience becomes seared and calloused as with a hot iron. And men lose all desire to repent and they are given up to a strong delusion that they should believe a lie and be doomed to eternal damnation, to hell. That's what happened with these scribes. They had refused every witness that God had given them to the truth as seen in Christ Jesus. What is this terrible sin against the Holy Spirit? Can it be committed today? And if so, how? Does this mean that the Holy Spirit is more important than Jesus? No, they are equal. They are co-equals. They just serve in different ways. We often hear the name of God or Jesus used in a blasphemous way, don't we? We've heard God's name and Jesus' name used in a blasphemous way as curse words. Rarely, if ever, the name of the Holy Spirit. And it seems that this situation only existed while Jesus was ministering on earth. Jesus... Jesus didn't appear to be different than any other Jewish man. So to speak against Jesus could be forgiven while he was on earth. There's no sin that is unpardonable if men repent and turn to faith in Christ. But when the Holy Spirit of God came at Pentecost as proof that Jesus was the Christ and he was alive, to reject that witness of the Holy Spirit was final. The only consequence would be judgment. And when the leaders rejected John the Baptist, they were rejecting the father who sent him. When they rejected Jesus, they were rejecting the son. But when they rejected the ministry of the apostles, they rejected the Holy Spirit. That was the end. There's no more witness. The father, the son, the Holy Spirit. That rejection can't be forgiven. Is there an impardonable sin today? Yeah, it's the final rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus made it clear that all sins can be forgiven there in verse 31, but cannot forgive the rejection of his son. 
God cannot forgive the rejection of his son. It's the Holy Spirit who bears witness to his son, Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts the lost sinner. And if someone is worried over the possibility that they've committed the unpardonable sin, most likely they haven't. It's when you could care less that you've committed the unpardonable sin that most likely you have. Because you have no conviction. You have no conscience. You have no no care or feeling for God anymore. You know, every time you say no, you begin to build a pattern in your mind. It's It's the same with yes. The more you say no to Jesus Christ, the easier it will become until one day you'll, you'll, I'm not even going to church. I don't care. I'm not interested anymore. So, So be forewarned. What Jesus said here was never meant to torment people. That is, you know, about the unpardonable sin. Have I done it? And I do it, you know, no. It was never meant to torment people who were honestly wanting to know Jesus Christ. But it's a serious warning about danger to those who continue to reject the Holy Spirit's testimony of Christ until their conscience is seared and they no longer respond to the gospel message. The longer you say no, each time you say no, it becomes easier and easier and easier. And I remember it it, back in the day when I used to do drugs when I first started. I I never took them in high school. I remember all the all the the films about drugs, how bad they were in high school, and I stayed away until after I got out of high school. But I remember the first time I did it, I said, "Oh, I can't ever do that." My conscience—I was—I felt so bad and so guilty. I said, "I can't do that anymore. I'm not. I'm not going to do this anymore." Sometime later, I did it again. Oh man, I just. Oh man, I can't. I just said I wasn't going to do this, and and I'm not going to do this anymore. And I did it again and again and again until it was no big deal. It was natural. And I'd go out looking for the drugs. At one point, I said, no, I can't do this. But each time I did it, it became easier. And it's the same thing when you say no. When you say no to Christ, each time you do that, it becomes easier and easier till it's no big deal. Just... You know, I've lost interest. So before, it's a dangerous place to be each time you say no to Jesus Christ. Verses 31 through 35. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brother's? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my, uh, the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here are the new relationships. Jesus is talking about the new relationships here. The brothers of Jesus, including his mother, didn't seem yet to completely understand the nature and the destiny of her divinely born son. They didn't understand what he was doing. They didn't understand his nature. They didn't understand that he, that, that why he came. And they, they went, they, 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 the mom sent the, the, the rest of the brothers out to go get Jesus. Because, again, even the brothers, they thought that they thought he was out of his mind. You know, they just thought he, you know, and how many times to, did uh, our friends and maybe uh, we think of others that came to Christ. I, that's exactly what I said about my friend, Pastor Raul. I told my mom, I said it different. I said, he went nuts. He's gone off the deep end, mom. But this is what they're thinking about Jesus. They don't understand his nature or his mission, what God had called them to do. They couldn't get to him, though, because of the crowd. Verse 20, 31 says they called him. So Mary and her sons were worried about Jesus. They, 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 they couldn't understand this strong zeal and this, this drive that he had and the work that he was doing. She didn't totally understand her son, and his brothers didn't believe him as well. We see that in John chapter 7, verse 5. Said they didn't believe what he was, who he was. And here now, standing outside the house, 
and they're worried about him. They send a message that they were looking for Jesus. Verse 32 says, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And then in Jesus' answer, it showed how all, all natural relationships were to be superseded by those of a spiritual nature. In verse 33, he asked, who is my mother or my brothers? And then Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew chapter 10, 37 through 39. Because Jesus, because Jesus is God, he demands the highest place in our hearts. We're to put love for him. Before or a different level than to our father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, children, anybody else. And here's what this means. If we're not willing to give up all earthly possessions and forsake all earthly friends and relations, if we don't obey him rather than all others, we, we don't have a true attachment to him. Now, this does not mean abandoning my family, my parents, my whoever, my, 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 my intimate relations. It doesn't mean abandon them. It means I just have a higher calling. If Jesus calls me to, to do this, I need to go do it. I need to go in obedience to him. Now, you know, being married to someone that's not of a spiritual nature, that's where a difficulty comes. They don't understand that. They don't understand the nature of the call and why I'm going. That's why it's real important that you have a partner that is, is one with you in, 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 in a relationship with God and in ministry and understanding that, yeah, God may you know, call us away at time and the worst times. And I remember when Kathy got her breast cancer and she had just had surgery. I'd already you know, uh, prepared to go to South America with Pastor Rawl. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was like, man, I can't leave her. I, you know, she's just got out of this surgery. She has cancer. And, you know, I, and, and, and she told me, go. You go. That's what you, that's what you need to do. You, I'll be okay. You see, she understood. She understood the call of ministry. She understood where I was going and why. She said, I'll be okay. Normally, that under normal circumstances, you can't go. You you cancel that ticket, and you you know, and and which would be totally natural. But that's what Jesus is saying: the super, the the, the spiritual relationship supersedes the natural, because we're going over there to teach the South American uh, pastors leadership, and it's important over there. They need they need good leadership. Because they're, they're leading the church of God. And so, again, if, if, if we're not willing to, to do that, we don't have a true attachment to him. So, Jesus, we're not worthy of him. We're not fit to be regarded, he says, as a follower of him. And the only way a believer can escape conflict is to deny Christ and compromise his witness. But that would be sin. Then the believer would be at war with God and himself. We would be misunderstood. You know, we, will, we will be misunderstood and persecuted by taking that stand, taking that choice, even by those closest to us. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. We can't allow this to affect our witness. We have to watch carefully our hearts that no other relationships prevail above our love for God and to take our duty away from him. Each believer has to make that decision once and for all to love Jesus Christ supremely and to take his cross and to follow him. When Jesus called us, it was literally a call to death. It was a call to death, a death to myself, to my cravings, to my desires, to my wants. Because he put in a much greater one. The love is the cross, and the motive for the cross is here. 
The love is the cross and the motive for the cross here. This is what Jesus is talking about. To carry the cross, that's more than wearing a pin, you know, maybe a cross. Or wearing a what would Jesus do bracelet or having a bumper sticker, a Christian bumper sticker. It means confessing Jesus Christ and obeying him in spite of shame and suffering. A man carrying a cross was a man devoted to death. And for us, it means to die to self every single day in a thousand different ways. Jesus went to the cross for us, so the least we can do for him is carry the cross. And we only have two choices, spare your life or sacrifice your life. There's no middle ground. If we protect our desires and our interests, we'll be losers. If we die to self and we live for his, his interests, we'll be winners. To live for self is to fail to recognize the purpose of our creation. We were created, as Paul said, to do what? To glorify him. To glorify Christ in us. The real war is here inside. It's either me or Christ. Myself or Jesus. That one that's concerned with saving their temporal life or their comfort, or their security here, will lose eternal life. The one that's willing to risk or lose his comfort and their life here, for my sake, Jesus said, shall find everlasting life. In closing, Mark gives a clear description of a typical gesture of Jesus. It says here that he looked around. In verse 33, he looked around him as they were sitting nearby and he said this here are my mother and my brothers now jesus didn't mean to insult or disrespect or offend his immediate family jesus cared for his mother it shows that in john 19 when he was being crucified he told one of the disciples you take care of my mom he made that very clear at the cross Jesus was simply making the point with a strong, dramatic gesture. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. Obedience to God rather than physical relationships is what binds us to Jesus Christ, binds us closely to Jesus. And this was probably really comforting to the early church that was hurt by broken families. Those learning of Christ and coming to Christ. And then becoming excluded from their families and persecuted because they converted to Jesus. And many of you probably had experienced that at one time. And if obedience to the will of God is commanded, think of it. Anything that God commands us to do. And especially if obedience to the will of God is commanded, then it's by God's grace a possibility. His command is our enablement. If he says go, he says, I'll send with you what you need to go. If he sends me to do a task, he'll enable me to do the task. He does not say go and then sit back and watch how you're going to struggle and do this. Just like with the disciples, he empowered them to go, train them, and then he sent them out. And they, t- and, and they turned the, w- the world upside right in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you so much for the training that Jesus gives us, God. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes on him, to focus on him and only him, God. Lord, let us get the best training, and that's from the Savior himself, God. Communion, companionship, commission, God. Communion, compassion, and commission, Lord. um, Father, we just thank you so much. Teach us, Lord. 
May we all carry the cross every day. As Jesus said, if anyone desires to follow after me, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. Between the, between the desire to follow and to follow Christ is a cross. Lord, that, let that be our desire, God, to be so committed to Jesus. Lord, may you bless my brothers and sisters. May you have your hand upon them. Lord, may you stir their hearts. May you draw them to you, God, with great conviction, God, so that they can't resist, God. And if you're here this morning and you haven't received Christ for whatever reason, it's not a good reason. And you recognize, you know, I, I need to receive Christ. I don't want to say no to the point that I'm not interested anymore. And that God closes the door on me. He really doesn't close the door. You close it on him. But there is a time and a point where you don't feel the conviction anymore. I'm going to say this prayer out loud. And if you want to receive Christ, then you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you through thick and thin all the days of my life. And thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer and you don't have a Bible, we'll be more than glad to give you one. And we encourage you to go to find you a, a good Bible teaching church and uh, begin your new walk with Christ. Uh, let me pray for the offering before we go and um, we'll have our last song will be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the offering that we're about to receive, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight, 6 o'clock, uh, Psalm 147, what, what Gives God Joy. That's the title, What Gives God Joy. Also, your 2020 contribution statements, they're right outside here. And so if you want to pick them up, go for it. And if you're unable to or if anybody misses it, you can let them know that uh, uh, we will mail them um, you know, to those who haven't been able to pick them up. All right? God bless you guys.